Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of uh, HPO Podcast. This one will be, I believe, 2.40 when it goes up, and I am welcoming in Brody to help me break down a couple topics I've been getting some questions about a lot recently, actually, which is a lot of times I'll get questions related to kind of strength work or stretching, mobility, and kind of how that all interplays with usually when the questions are coming to me specific to endurance athletes, but sometimes just in general too. So I think we're going to go through a few of those topics as well as a few more with, uh, with Brody. So Brody, thank you for taking some time and coming on HPO. Thanks Zach. Thanks for having me on. Um, 240 episodes is a massive achievement. So congratulations. <laughs> yeah. It's always funny. I have to, have to look twice sometimes when I see that. Cause I'm like, have I really recorded that many? How many hours? Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. So, you know, you learn a lot and, and uh, you just uh, get, get introduced to a lot of different cool, interesting, interesting people. So it's, it's, it's hardly, hardly something that I complain about for the most part. But <laughs> um, to add to that, why don't you give us a bit of a background as to kind of what you're, what you're into, where your focus is, and we can maybe jump into some of these topics. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I'm from Melbourne, Australia. I am a physiotherapist by trade and I have started niching down to only treating runners and delving into what the research shows, where the misconceptions are with a lot of runners. And it all started with about two or three years into my physiotherapy career. It's the same as a physical therapist. Um, We I became a runner. So I went from playing basketball, playing quite competitive to then giving that up. And my sister wanted me to help her train for a half marathon. And so I trained with her and quickly caught the bug, quickly got injured as most runners do and um, had a couple of ups and downs, but caught the bug straight away. And then realized within my clinics, when a runner would come in, I'd see like anyone under the sun, but when a runner would come in, I'd have this heightened passion. I'd always want to talk about what running shoes they have, what what running cadence they are, what race they're preparing for. And I'd just be buzzing and I'd it'd bring out my best self and bring out my best work to try and get them back running pain-free. And so recognize that and wanted to spend more time around runners. So that's where we are today. And not only that, but I've also... Um, decided like when I was treating runners, I was constantly educating them on the same concepts. And I recognized there was a lot of common misconceptions out there 
And once I delved into the research, show that a lot of these concepts and top topics we might talk about today um, are widely circulated that are untrue or ineffective. Um, and there's definitely a lot of practices that we could implement that allows a runner to survive and thrive more so than what they believe to be true. And so that's why I decided to start a podcast. I started the Run Smarter podcast. I thought the audio format would be perfect just to explain these concepts and educate to a runner exactly what they need to do to reduce their risk of injury or if they do have symptoms or if they are injured, uh, exactly what they need to do to overcome these injuries. And yeah, just explaining those concepts along the way. So it ties in really well with my physio career working with runners and also the podcast Educating Runners um, ties in really well and gives me a lot of passion throughout the day. And so that's where, that's where I'm today. Awesome. Yeah. You know, one thing I always think about when I think of running in general, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you've seen it differently, but when I think of just like introduction to sports and different like activities, a lot of time my mind goes back to kind of like primary schooling where a lot of kids get introduced to recreational sports, what connected to their school program or a youth group or some sort of like recreational thing that the city's putting on. And when I think of a lot of sports, there tends to be a technical aspect to some of them where you need to do like, there's some stuff you need to do before you kind of get up there and start playing just to make sure you have the skills and the requirements to be able to do it safely. But when we get to running, it's almost like we're just kind of ingrained in our minds that, oh, running is something that humans can kind of just naturally do. Therefore, we need to send you out and do the types of running that are going to better you at whatever race distance you're trying to target or event you're trying to target. But there seems to be a lot less upfront work in terms of educating folks to like, what do you got to do to make sure you're running healthy and running safe? Because we don't think of it as like a contact sport, but essentially you're doing a lot of like really small um, impacts when you're running, especially when you're running higher distance, especially or higher volume. And when you're adding in any type of intensity and things like that, there's just a lot of, a lot of different ways that that impacts your body. And sometimes I wonder if we're, we're missing something with like kind of the early stages in, in running to kind of like work with kids or work with newcomers to the sport with certain things like mechanics, how do you identify like what is going to be the best footwear for you personally? What are some kind of like tertiary type things you can do to stay healthy, whether that be kind of stretching mobility or strength work and things like that. Is that what you're seeing a lot of times when you have someone come to you? Cause I'm guessing by the time they get to you, it's kind of a reaction. They're like, okay, I hurt myself. Therefore now I need to do this to get my primary activity back. And then you're kind of like, you're playing catch up versus preventive in a lot of cases. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Running is a funny sport because you have people start running sometimes in their thirties, forties, fifties, and they're just like, yeah, I'll just go out and run. And you do say, yes, it is repetitive, small ground reaction forces, but it's actually quite large ground reaction forces as well. We're talking like when it comes to the hip and knee, you're talking two to three times your body weight, every single step. And when it comes to individual tissues, particularly around the foot, sometimes you get up to six to eight times your body weight, every single step. And yeah, I do see a lot. They usually get to me when they've come to me, they already injured and they've already had several months of an injury or they've had um, several different injuries and they're just over it and they want to reduce their risk of injury in the future. Um, so 
they are quite sensitive, quite irritable, quite um, severe injuries by the time they do get to me. Um, but yeah, running is a funny sport. It's not like a team sport where you play for an hour and a half and then the game's over. A lot of times people will train for a half marathon and then they're like, okay, now I want to try a full marathon. Now I want to try an ultra. Now I want to try a hundred mile. Now I try 200 mile. There's this like limitless, uh, <laughs> there's this limitless like ceiling that people just want to continue pushing themselves. And if they're unaware of how they can reduce their risk of injuries and thrive, they're just going to continue going until there's a limit until they start breaking down because it is infectious and people are quite addicted to running in most cases and they will continue running until they're injured and they will continue running. Like if they start developing some slight symptoms and don't change their practices, they'll just keep running until they've got a grumbly Achilles, but then they'll keep running through that Achilles because that's sometimes running's all they know. Sometimes it's their, um, it's their release. It's like their outlet. And so they'll have to continue running until the injury is so severe that they can't run. Then they see me or then they see their health professional. And by that stage, it's usually um, a little bit too far down the track and we have to work our way backwards in many cases. Yeah. It's interesting. When I think of runners, I think of just their, what they perhaps lack in brute strength in the weight room, they make up for with just a, an ungodly tolerance to mild to moderate discomfort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, yeah, you get that little like nagging injury, but it's not enough to really keep you from enjoying the activity, at least to enjoying it enough to continue to do it. So a lot of times I think I see runners try to push it to the back of their mind until it becomes something where every step is so painstaking that it, they have to kind of find a solution or it's just, it, it gets too overwhelming. I did a post and a podcast episode um, talking around personality perfectionism and if it is helping or hindering a runner. And in most cases it does help. And like our, a runner's personality in some cases would be the type A self-driven, self-motivated, uh, which is really, really good when you have a marathon to train for, or you have these goals that you've implemented. And that's where a runner comes into it. They, they can get up and um, motivate themselves to train every day. But when they're injured, a lot of times those personality traits turns into like stubbornness or when it's, when they're highly strung professional um, or perfectionist in them, their own right, they, it leads them to running through an injury or returning to running too quickly from an injury and just, yeah, overdoing things. And those, those personality traits can attribute to overtraining and, like I said, returning too quickly. So there are some positive attributes to those sort of personality traits, but there's also some, you can also recognize that there is some behavior within those personality traits that could lead to injury and can lead to a bit of a downfall in some stages. Yeah. And you, and you know, those traits are accelerated a bit when the injured runner comes in and they're willing to put in two hours worth of rehab per day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're, um, we're a stubborn bunch, but we're also a very motivated bunch as well. And so um, it's just trying to, to use those personality traits to your advantage rather than your detriment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's probably good good ways to kind of leverage that personality towards like a, a, a more sound or safe, uh, sustainable approach where you have this highly motivated person. And usually at that point, 
you kind of, you have to convince them that changing what they're doing is in their best interest. But once you can kind of convince them of that, then like the programming becomes quite simple in, in my opinion, in terms of getting them to adhere to it. So <laughs> that's, that's the nice part about it is sometimes you have to do a little bit of maybe deprogramming in terms of just because running as much as you could until you were too tired to run anymore worked well for you the first couple of years doesn't necessarily mean that's going to continue to work for you. So let's look at how we can do that. Or maybe another way to look at it is just because running this particular set of workouts and structure had you injury free for the first couple of years doesn't mean that's always going to be the case. If you don't also have the foundation with some of those tertiary activities to kind of help keep you strong and resilient over time. Yeah, totally agree. Um, just to share like one of the posts that I did a couple of weeks ago, I actually um, reviewed an article that showed if you rated high on this um, personality questionnaire, this section of uh what they called uh, perfectionistic concerns. Like if you're concerned about maybe um, you're not performing to the highest of amount, if you're actually worried that you're not going to reach your PB or something like that, if you rated high in that questionnaire under that topic, you are 17 times more likely to get injured um, than someone who doesn't rate highly in that category. So there is something to say with a link between personality traits and injury. Yeah, that's actually an interesting thought process just because I know, I mean, I've been guilty of this in the past before where you are in the middle of a training block and you're like hyper fixated on whatever workout is next and how that's going to move you forward long-term. And there is something that is a big enough issue that would justify taking a day or two off or taking a step back and kind of reanalyzing kind of your, your path forward. And even if it's a scenario where, taking two to three days off can save the entirety of the rest of your program versus pushing through it and potentially sabotaging yourself to the degree where you need four to six weeks off instead of two to three days is something yeah. I kind of see pop up from time to time with that. And I think it kind of fits right in with what you were saying. And no runner wants to take four to six weeks off. It's, no. um, that's a nightmare for them. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a, a death sentence to the pool and the stationary bike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, awesome. So yeah, let's jump into some of this stuff. What are some of the, maybe we should start with this. What's one of the kind of focus points you like to start something off with? So if like I was a runner and I came to you and said, I'm just getting started with this. I'm really excited about it. I picked out a race. What are some things I should consider doing outside of just the, the training itself? Um, some concepts I like to educate people on is just the fact of your you want to adhere to your adaptation zone. You want to recognize where your adaptation zone is and not have your training too abrupt in order to exceed that adaptation zone. And um, that's like my very, very first episode of the podcast is called Adaptation Education. And that's exactly why you need to recognize that when you do start anything that's new or if you've been doing it for 10 years, you have a certain adaptation zone where if you hit that adaptation zone in your training, you will get stronger. As long as you recover afterwards, you will get stronger. You will adapt to the stimulus or the dosage that you've just put your body through and get stronger because of it. However, some people can um, fall short of that adaptation zone. If they go for a 15 minute walk, sometimes that's not enough to trigger adaptation. If they do too much and run for two hours um, when they're not used to it, that might exceed their adaptation zone and lead or increase their risk of injury. And so it's just explaining this concept that you do need to start 
within your adaptation zone. And then you slowly need to build up and not have too much abrupt changes in training because then your tissues will be too foreign to them. They'll start breaking down, start getting injured. So if there is a new runner who hasn't ran for either a long time or hasn't done any running in the past, we need to work out some baseline characteristics. We need to say, okay, how strong are they? Have they been involved in the gym before they started running? Have they been involved in team sports? Just getting an overall level of how much load they can put, um, withstand. Uh, and then just starting off really conservative and then just slowly building up. That's why things like running plans or the couch to 5k app is really helpful just to start off slowly, do it. You can do it five, six times a week if it's really gradual and you're slowly building up if you start conservatively um, because you're hitting that adaptation zone more often throughout the week. And if that's backed up with some good recovery, like sleep and nutrition, then you're going to get stronger because of it. Your body's going to get more used to running and that adaptation zone starts increasing and you need to start chasing that adaptation zone. Um, so all of a sudden after a couple of months, what was once your adaptation zone, if you ran 5k might not be your adaptation zone anymore. You might be falling short of that and you need to continuously follow that growing adaptation zone. And that's how we get stronger. That's how we build a big base and we do know that building a big running base is really important for once you start changing up your training, like changing terrain or changing interval training, um, you're a bit more resilient. You've got a bit more of a buffer there. And so that's a very patient, a very methodical way of going about it, which runners often don't like, but it's a sensible one. And that's a lot of times, a lot of concepts that I teach. It's just about training smarter and having a bit more of a sensible approach and having a bit of patience as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you kind of described is what I talk to my coaching clients with is like micro stressing. So we want to find what your, what, what, what is kind of the point where we can push a little bit past what your comfort zone is, or what is just essentially going to keep you at equilibrium, push just a bit past that step back, recover. And then when you come back the next time, you'll maybe be able to push a little further. And if we just keep doing that over and over consistently, we'll find ourselves in a position where you're doing things you weren't able to do the last time you went to the, to the race course or the event. And the, where it gets interesting is, you know, since running does have a bit of a communal approach to it as well. And it's something that folks like to do in groups. Sometimes it can be very easy to look at say your friend or someone that you were inspired by and say, well, they're doing this and getting that results. Therefore I should do that. When in reality, by jumping ahead and kind of doing or replicating someone else's program, they find themselves in a situation where they're no longer micro stressing and they're macro stressing. And then it's like, you may have just had this killer workout that you're really proud of in the moment, but if it takes you so long to recover from that one workout that it takes the next workout off the table, our overall volume at the intensity we're trying to target for improvement may actually reduce versus grow by doing by overreaching or macro stressing. So I think that's a really great kind of thing to point out where you have to really look at yourself as an individual and decide like, what is your workload threshold at the moment and start from there. And where it gets even more interesting sometimes I think is when you get some an, an app or a runner who's got some experience but they were deprogrammed a little bit from either an off season or an injury or something that kind of pulled them away from their peak training. And now they have to kind of separate themselves from where they've been at mentally historically and recognize, okay, I can get back there quite easily, probably quicker than the time before, but I still need to do the micro stressing versus trying to get right back to where I was when I first stopped. 
Absolutely. If you've had some off training or if you've gone away on holidays, you will have to start off really conservative. I call it like an embarrassingly slow pace. It needs to be, you almost need to be embarrassed to look at like the dosage that you're doing, but you will bounce back a lot quicker than um, what it took to initially do that build up. Your your body will recognize it quickly and um, you'll adapt a lot quicker because the body's had that experience and been used to that. So yeah, it's good to keep in mind. Um, it's, it's encouraging to keep in mind, but just know that uh, it starts off quite conservative. And I do agree pushing, comparing yourself to others is, can be motivating. Like if you follow elite athletes or if you follow other people, you can draw inspiration and that can motivate you to get out of the house, which is a good thing, but you can't try and follow the same metrics. You can't say, oh, they did this distance or they're running at this speed. Let me try and run at that speed or, um, I'm not a good runner. This is what like people tend to think. And that's just a disaster waiting to happen. Um, and keep in mind that I know a lot of runners recognize weekly mileage and they know not to overdo their weekly mileage too much, but keep in mind when it comes to your adaptation zone, abrupts in change, like you could just go to from changing a, a different type of shoe. You could be going from a traditional shoe to say like a, a minimalist shoe and do the same running in that. And that can be a quick, abrupt change that could lead to injury as well. You do need to adapt and get used to running in those shoes. It does need to be a slow process. Terrain is another one. You could be running flats 50 miles a week, but then all of a sudden, if you're doing 50 miles a week involving a lot of hills, that can be an abrupt change. It could lead to injury as well. So it's not just the weekly mileage that we need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's one I, uh, I kind of relearned a little bit when my wife and I moved to Phoenix, Arizona, three years ago, I had been doing quite a bit of flat kind of concrete running for quite some time. And then we had more access to trails and hard kind of undulating rocky trail settings. And I, one thing I quickly recognized, thankfully before an injury really flared up was I had to reduce my volume by about 50% to just be able to kind of let those, that lower part of my legs really adapt to that difference in terrain before I could really start hitting the volume that I was capable of just from a, an aerobic fitness standpoint. So that's uh, being smart. It's being sensible. Look at you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Thankfully I noticed I had a little discomfort in my IT band and I caught it quick enough. I had some prior experience where I maybe didn't make the right decision to kind of mm-hmm. guide my guide my decision at that point. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there's that crosses over into a lot of different topics. Like you said, like footwear is another one where it like, you know, when you go to those like lower profile types of shoes, those can maybe improve your placement of your foot in the way that kind of saves maybe your knees and hips sometimes, but it's also going to kind of put a lot more impact and a lot of force into that lower part of the leg. So you almost need to look at that same way you would as like a weight room where if I was say away from the weight room for four to six weeks and I went back in, I probably wouldn't be able to just replicate my old routine right out the gate. I'd maybe have to like take some sets off of the table at first to kind of readjust or re readapt to that where like when I'm working with someone, they've been wearing like a highly cushioned shoe for quite some time and they go down into a firm lower profile shoe. We got to be a little careful about how we kind of ease that into there because we are going to be creating some different distributions of kind of where the, the impact of running ends up going. Yeah. If you can think of it, like when we never reduce the impact on the body, we only just redistribute around the body. So you can take some significant load off your foot, calf, Achilles, 
Um, but it's going to go somewhere else. It's going to go to the hip and knee, which is why when we change our shoes or we change our stride, um, a lot of times it doesn't reduce our risk of injury. It reduces our risk of injury in a, in a particular area. Um, so if someone is had a long history of Achilles issues or a long history of plantar fasciitis, there, there are some changes we can make and some things we can do to help offload that structure if we wanted to, but we're just going to be increasing our uh, risk at the knee or at the hip or something like that because we're only just redistributing the load. Um, so it's a, it's a very uh, good point that we can make, maybe dive more into, but yeah, um, keep that in mind. We're not reducing load. If you do have a cushioned shoe, we're not reducing um, the overall load in the body. Mm-hmm. This episode of HPO is made possible through our friends at Bioptimizers and their new product, Cognibiotics. Negative feelings and mood can be impacted by the health of your gut. So serotonin has been linked to happiness, much of which is created in your gut. If your gut health is off, it can lead to negative outcomes such as loss of happiness and positivity. Bioptimizers has aimed at tackling this with their product Cognibiotics, which they call their breakthrough mood enhancer. This formula starts with a solid foundation of prebiotics and probiotics to support gut health and positive feelings in a safe and natural way. Cognibiotics also includes 17 herbs that are linked to enhanced mood, stress management, and improved memory. One of my personal favorite aspects of trying any of Bioptimizer's products is their full one-year money-back guarantee. So you don't have to take their word for it. Just try it out. See for yourself risk-free. Head over to www.cognibiotics.com forward slash human. That's www.cognibiotics.com forward slash H-U-M-A-N. And throw in promo code HUMAN10, that's capital H-U-M-A-N-1-0 for 10% off your next order. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, that's this is actually a good part, I think, to dive in a little bit because I think there's maybe, and maybe there's more and you can add to it if you want, but there's like kind of two channels I'd like to kind of explore with this. And one is like the healthy runner and how they should kind of treat that information versus the runner who's already got some sort of issue going on, whether it be knee, hip or lower leg, ankle, Achilles tendon, foot type stuff. Because if we take that first channel or that first route where it's the healthy runner, one thing I like to use is, or talk to runners about or to consider anyway, is to develop like a footwear quiver or a shoe quiver, where rather than just having one pair of shoes that you really like and kind of running those into the ground and then replacing and repeating, it may not be a bad idea to have two or three different shoe options that are different so that if you have say a shorter, faster workout and you want that lower profile, more responsive shoe, and you want to give those lower legs a little bit more of a, of a, of a stimulus, you can wear those lower profile shoes. But then the next day you may be a little sore in the feet, ankles, calves, and you don't necessarily want to go out and rehammer that area of the body. So then maybe you put on the cushioned shoe And now you're kind of alleviating the sore, maybe lagging behind areas of your body and redistributing some of those forces into the areas that were a little more protected the day before and use that more cushioned shoe to give that lower, the lower legs of your body, a little bit of a break. And it can work 
like vice versa too, where maybe you have like some knee and hip issue. You want a little more precise foot plant for a run. Then you, maybe you pull out that lower profile shoe. Um, so that would be kind of like the preventative approach. And then it's like the other area is like, okay, now we already have someone that's got something going on. Maybe I roll my ankle. So my, my weak area is my ankle and everything else at that moment is probably still, um, fairly decent or at least normalized. And for that particular situation, I may want to step away from those lower profile shoes for a week or two weeks or however long it takes that ankle to kind of settle down and uh, kind of just assume that impact or those forces in the other areas of my body that are currently healthy and hopefully do it in a sustainable enough way where I don't create another injury up further up the kinetic chain in hopes to kind of save that spot that's already giving me trouble. There's yeah a lot to unpack there. Uh, we'll we'll jump back to the healthy runner, the one who wants to increase performance or decrease risk of injury, or just wants to thrive in whatever mileage they're currently doing. Um, I completely agree with you. I talk about a runner if they want to reduce their risk of injury. There's a few things they can do, but one is they can build up, they can become more resilient, and that is throwing different things at them, throwing different environments, different equipment, different um, demands and they don't break down. Like they want to be as resilient as they can in order to do that. They need variety. They need to adapt to variety, uh, which takes a bit of time and takes a bit of practice, but it can be achieved and changing your shoes is one way to do that. And so if you say for my running, I like running with minimalist shoes. It's um, a lot more load, a lot more demand on my feet, calf, Achilles, but I have adapted to those shoes. So I'm very strong in my feet, calf, Achilles, and if there is, um, I I'd also have like a traditional shoe with like a 10 mil heel drop that I sometimes like to use. Um, but I've adapted to those two very different types of shoes, but that's just increased my resiliency. And if you have a runner, um, if you have a running shoe that you love and that you thriving, you don't want to change. That's okay. It's, it's okay. Cause you've adapted to that shoe, but you're just going to keep in mind you're reducing your risk oh, while well, you're reducing your resiliency. You're just staying narrow into one particular field. Um, so yes, changing up the shoes can increase your resiliency, but the same thing like you were talking about, it also shifts the load if needed. And so if I have a, a calf workout or if I do uh, a fast session in my minimal shoes and the next day my calves are a bit sore, I'll probably have a day off. And then the next day I'll probably go to my traditional shoes to give my calves a bit of a rest. They're still working, but it's redistributing the load or the demand away from the feet, away from the calf, away from the Achilles and more so more demand around the knee and the hip. And you're just changing the, you're just changing the load. You're just changing the environment of the body because 90, 95% of injuries that run sustain are these running, uh, overload overuse type of injuries it's the repetitiveness it's the thumping the ground over and over and over again and you eventually will develop an overuse injury however if you can change your own environment so that it's not so repetitive on one particular structure then that obviously changes up the variation of the body it reduces your risk of these um yeah, these, the load in one area and it reduces your overall risk of injury if you continue to change it and change the load if you're adapted to it. Um, so yeah, totally agree with you with that one. And moving on to the injured runner, yes, we do want to increase less. 
we'll use an example. Um, we'll say like plantar fasciitis. Let's just say um, they have had a long history of plantar fasciitis. We can say give them a supportive shoe if they find that that's reducing their symptoms. Um, and we can get them to walk. We can then get them to jog. We then can get them to run in those particular types of shoes. Um, and that can help them thrive. Yes, it will change the demand. It will increase the risk of knee injuries or increase the load on the knee um, because it might be a bigger, bulkier, heavier type of shoe. But we also want to keep in mind that once those symptoms are better, we do want to build them back up to where they once were or build up the, the capacity within the plantar fascia, within the foot and the calf so that they can tolerate, say, walking barefoot or running with back to their traditional shoe or even running with a minimalist shoe and trying to really increase that resiliency. And if there's one concept that I introduce over and over and over again in my podcast, it's this thing called the pain rest weakness downward spiral, where if a runner is injured, they want to protect that area and it's fine to protect the area in the short term. So symptoms calm down, but a lot of them often retreat back to safety, which is maybe running in a maximalist shoe or running in a hocker because it settles down their fa plantar fasciitis, but they never return back to their original shoes and they're just retreating back. And if that continues for weeks and months, that structure becomes weaker and weaker and weaker and unable to tolerate what it once could. And then all of a sudden, if you're still running in your maximalist shoes, or your hawkers and you do a hour run and then the plantar fascia flares up. You're like, oh damn, but I was wearing my hawker shoes. Maybe I just need to, maybe it's not strong enough. Maybe I just need to run for 30 minutes. And then a couple of months later, now running for 30 minutes causes the plantar fascia to flare up. You're like, oh damn. And then all of a sudden walking in like minimalist shoes or walking for in bare feet for 10 minutes flares it up. And you're like, oh damn. And all of a sudden walking in bare feet for five minutes flares it up. And you just follow this trend of um, this retreating and removing anything that causes symptoms, but the, the structure itself can just tolerate less and less and less. And so there's this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral that just continues until like walking can flare it up. And this happens with every injury. If you retreat away and retreat to safety and you try and manage that injury with rest and recovery too much, then yeah, this downward spiral can start manifesting itself. And it's really hard to work your way back up that spiral the further down you are. Um, plantar fasciitis is a perfect example of what I've seen and just following trends of what people can tolerate over months, several months, sometimes years. Um, so I do recommend that they, yes, back off for a couple of days, let symptoms settle, but then we need to be active. We need to try and find what you can tolerate and have a plan to get you back to that level of tolerance that you once could tolerate. Um, that's how we stay resilient. That's how we make sure that oh, we reduce the risk of re-injury as much as we can is by having that proactive approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you mentioned about just kind of the spiraling thing is I think resonates probably with a lot of runners. And I see it all the time where, you know, you may have someone who started out in a neutral, moderately cushioned shoe and they were fine. And then something, you know, something happened, they had a little injury or something where they overreached a bit and it flared up on them. So they go in and they get a little bit of structure, a little bit of support out of their shoe to kind of help that particular situation or get through that particular situation. And then rather than kind of going back, like you mentioned, 
they, they go back in the next time when it's time to get another pair of shoes and they've atrophied in an area because they've added that support from what would normally be a, a moving part. And now they need even more support. And over the course of time, you have someone who's maybe running for 10 years and now all of a sudden they've got all sorts of inserts, way more cushion, like braces, different things. And they're almost like unable to do what their body could do with no equipment uh, any longer. They need like four or five pieces of gear just to get, get out of the door, get out the door and do the activity that they love. And I think that's, uh, that's sometimes all too common within the running world. Yeah. And um, very common with orthotics. And like you say, very common with braces, very common with just like limiting your mileage and people saying, nah, I can't run more than 90 minutes or else I'll break down those sort of myths, mentalities. Um, yeah. It can be quite dangerous unless you get someone who's like, or you, you educate in the right topics to say that, yeah, you can build back up. It might be slow, but you can build up to become very resilient and tolerate a lot of load. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's been kind of a fun path for me personally to explore over my running career. Cause I know when I started competing in college and I started ramping up volume and the workouts just got built out from what I was used to in high school and things like that. You know, I had a series of like lower leg issues from Achilles tendonitis and some IT band issues and things like that, that uh, kind of pointed me into, or pointed to me some areas of weakness that I had. And then once I decided to try to like address those areas with, uh, you know, strengthening them through different types of footwear, as well as just different types of uh, weight strength training type things, then I started to recognize like, okay, there's like a proactive way and uh, like a reactive way to kind of go about this sort of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I think, like, I'm not too sure if you want to talk about orthotics today, but it might be a good segue into um, exactly what the, when to use, when not to use, what the dangers are, what the benefits are, those sort of things. Yeah, no, we should jump into that because I think that's a cool topic because I always thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I always think like with orthotics, you know, you kind of almost have two scenarios. Oh, I'm sure there's a bunch more than that, but there's two that I, that come to my mind right out, right out the gate. And one is someone who actually has like an imbalance where perhaps like, you know, one foot is shaped differently than the other, or there's a leg length variance or something like that, where they need some sort of thing put into their shoes just to, to help out with something that's not, they're not necessarily going to be able to outgrow uh, versus a person who uses an orthotic because they've got some sort of discomfort that was triggered by maybe overreaching or, you know, wearing an, a, a footwear product that wasn't ideal for their particular gait and their particular mechanics and they find themselves in an orthotic that probably should be short-term or moderate term, but ends up being long-term. Uh, am I kind of heading in the right direction with that thought process? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I'm happy to, I've wrote all those points down. Um, so let's start with leg length discrepancy, um, especially with runners. We know that um, there is like leg length discrepancy is actually very common in the human body um actually 80 to 90 percent of the humans have at least some low level of leg length discrepancy of like a couple of mils here and there when we do studies to look at the when we measure the the skeleton measure one leg then measure the other in most cases someone will have some sort of leg length discrepancy 
uh, but it's usually under five mil. We know that 80% of those are under five mil. With a runner, looking at studies and looking at biomechanics and um, looking at someone with a leg length discrepancy, we know that if you have a leg length discrepancy of a couple of mil, it doesn't do any difference. Like you, you're not going to overload one way or another. You're not going to compensate one way or another. Where you do compensate is if you have a leg length discrepancy of more than 20 mil, which is two centimeters, which is um, like an inch and a half, maybe it's quite significant. It's actually very significant. Um, that's when you actually start losing, or, well, you start manipulating your biomechanics, you start compensating. You, that's when you actually need an orthotic or need something to correct that imbalance. Whereas under 20 mil, under 15 mil, couple here and there, it just won't do enough to increase your risk of injury. And so what happens a lot is people go to health professionals or shoe stores or somewhere and they'll measure, they'll do like some test that's, you know, they'll pull on your legs and have a look and say, oh, you're five mil out on this side, which is not very scientific. If you just, um, we got told um, when I was at uni to do like, um, you lay on your back, do a bridge, come back down and then you just straighten out the legs and then you just measure, which is so inaccurate, <laughs> um, but that's how we were taught. And then you can just spot a difference in most people, almost everyone, you can spot a, a couple of mil difference. Um, and then it's, it makes total sense to be like, okay, you're a five mil difference on this side. You need a five mil orthotic on this shoe because that will balance you back out. But it's just not backed up by evidence that it will actually disrupt your running. It, it, it won't actually change your loads. It won't increase your risk of injury. Um, <clears throat> so there are studies to back that up. When it comes to foot shape, we all know this a lovely marketing um, poster at the front of like shoe stores or where you have a, a, a leg from behind, you see the Achilles kind of bowing, you see a foot collapsing and you see the body throw, being thrown out of alignment. And then there's this magical side-by-side -side comparison of someone being in orthotics where the Achilles and the foot and the heel magically do line up and it lines up the rest of the body. It makes total sense, doesn't it? If your foot's collapsing, we want to bring it back up to align everything, um, which I, I wish was true because it just make a ton of sense. But when we fall back on tons of evidence that has been done, we're just not sure. It, it definitely doesn't help align you. Sometimes we put um, people with really flat feet into orthotics and they actually pronate more than if they didn't have the orthotic and we're like, it's just completely puzzling, but we do know orthotics work. We do know orthotics work for some people and we have world renowned podiatrists that design these um, orthotic uh, studies and follow like every orthotic study that's released. And they do kind of conclude that orthotics work for some people, some of the time, but never for all people all the time. And it's trying to find out who those some people are some of the time. It's very hard to find out through baseline characteristics. It's very hard to find out through what foot shape they are or what type of injury they've had in the past or how severe their injury is, um, how they're walking. It's very hard to find baseline characteristics to know, okay, you will find an orthotic very beneficial. And so they're not sure why it works for some of those people maybe it's definitely not mechanics. So it's definitely not your, um, what we call kinematics. So like the angles of the foot or aligning people, it definitely doesn't do that. 
what it might do is first of all, placebo, if you believe it to be true. Second of all, it might be kinetics. It might be changes. Your foot can behave exactly the same, but the demands on certain tendons and certain muscles can change. Like it can offload um, demands on certain parts of the body. That's very hard to study, very hard to measure. Um, they think maybe that could be the case. Um, and the other is just like psychologically, if, if you've read all magazines, if you've seen people in the past, if, you, if your brother had the same thing and he wore orthotics and he's magically thriving now, that's a true belief that can be said. But if that's just left everyone completely puzzled, it's really simple. All you need to do is if, you've, if you have pain or if um, you want to give orthotics a go, just give them a go. It's a test. And if you find your symptoms are relieved, then that's perfectly fine. That's awesome. You should use orthotics. However, if they don't benefit you, if you don't have a relief in symptoms when you try orthotics, and they can just be cheap off-the-shelf orthotics, um, if you're not finding any benefit with them, don't wear them. But some people will find benefit, so then you use them. But we want to make sure the, the perfect point that you made before, we want to make sure that they're short-term. If you have plantar fasciitis or if you have some sort of foot pain and you do find benefit with orthotics, Yes, let's wear them. Let's settle down all these sensitive areas, but let's build up your body. Let's increase the amount of resiliency in order to not need the orthotics. Let's wean off the orthotics and then build up your capacity, build up your strength as much as we can so that you don't need them in the short, well, you don't need them once you wean them off and you don't need them in the future. Um, so keep that in mind. It is something that I see people are over-prescribed if someone gets plantar fasciitis and they look at, they measure your feet and say, oh, you're, you're overpronating. Well, you've been overpronating your whole entire life and you haven't been injured. You've only been injured when you've gone from running 50 miles a week to running 100 miles a week. That's not your foot pronating. That's just you overloading your body. And uh, or you've done too much work in bare feet and that's just a, or you're standing too much and your job requirements uh, have changed. So you're standing more than what you usually do. It's just a spike in demand through the, plantar fascia rather than your actual foot shape and we do know through other studies that if you do have flat feet or if you do pronate more than others it doesn't increase your risk of injury if anything it actually decreases we've seen um, studies where they follow thousands of people with different foot shapes put them in a neutral shoe and see how long it takes people to get injured and it's actually the ones who pronate get injured less and so um, that goes against what some people believe um, you can tell I've got, um, I'm a bit energized about this sort of topic <laughs> as I ramble on, but um, yeah, that's what the science shows. Yeah, it's excellent. I think I, I've read some stuff and I think the, like the, the science is getting more clear in this uh, as the days go by, where I think if you think of it like historically, where the standard kind of protocol was, okay, we're going to throw you on a treadmill inside this running store and we're going to put a camera behind you and watch how your ankles are rolling in or your feet are turning in. If you're over pronating and you have that collapse, then we need to stop that collapse from happening. And then they put on like a, say a shoe with a post in it. And then they put you back on that treadmill. Now, all of a sudden you're on this treadmill and it appears as though from behind that you are no longer rotating in, but once they introduce, I believe like force plates into the shoe, they recognize that your foot is actually still, pronating almost to the degree, I think within like a millimeter almost of what it was before, it just doesn't look like it because the shoe isn't pronating in the shoe isn't collapsing in. 
So the same impact is still kind of occurring in the same way. It's just being kind of disguised or hidden inside this, this built up shoe. So what I was told, and I'd love to hear your feedback on this is really, if you want to make a, an adjustment to someone's form and technique, you should be taking that camera and moving it to the side of the treadmill and watching where their foot is planting on the ground in relation to their knee bending or collapsing down. Because ultimately what we're looking for uh, from a running mechanic is that those, the, that, that weight bearing uses that three foot spring that is your leg to kind of collapse down in a uniform manner versus your foot being say out in front of that and creating like this, this almost this, uh, I guess it would be like an angle that's going to be more likely to drive those impacts, impact forces up into like, say your knees and hips and things like that. So by looking at it from the side, you're dealing with a much larger range of potential variances that you can easily see versus like the tiny little millimeters you're going to see by looking from the back of the runner. And then you can start adjusting things that are actually actionable. Like, okay, we need to like increase your cadence. We need to improve your forward lean. We need to work with your arm carriage and give them some, some tips and procedures they can do to actually fix that, that, that loading zone or that impact point where their foot is currently landing. All right, folks, I'm excited to announce that Eggweights has partnered with me as an athlete and the HPO podcast, and I want to share with you a few things that I use their products for. Uh, first, I love their run pods, which are these ergonomic weights that are two pounds that fit right in the palm of your hand. I love these to help with my arm drive and form consistency that they work with the University of Southern California's Clinical Science Research Lab to show the benefits for those. On the strength side of things, I'll actually sometimes go all the way up to their five-pound handhelds here for box jumps and lunges. And finally, I really like their total massage toolkit that you can customize. I really like it to dig out some of those sore spots in my calves and hamstrings. All their stuff come in these great little nice egg weights tote bags. So check them out at eggweights.com. That's E-G-G-W-E-I-G-H-T-S dot com and enter promo code ZACH15 for 15% off your order. That's Z-A-C-H-1-5 for 15% off. Alrighty, folks, now back to the show. It's very, very hard to work out what's going on in a shoe once you're wearing a shoe, especially with like scans and um, force plates, those sort of things. You have no idea what's going on inside the shoe. We have had studies, very rare studies, where they actually have bone pins. They actually drill a pin into the bone and have people walking to know what the, actual, the foot's actually doing. Mm-hmm. Even things like um, markers where they get these like sensors on the foot and get someone to walk, even that's inaccurate because skin moves over bone and it's very hard to know what the bones are doing um, with just like having those those skin markers. And so it's very, very tough to know. And you're exactly right. If you see someone pronating and then you put them in a shoe and all of a sudden they're not pronating. Um, Well, you're just looking at what the shoe is doing. You're not looking at what the foot inside the shoe is doing. And when it comes to shoe selection and around that whole topic, it's a very common experience for someone to go into a shoe store um, and they've been told, okay, the, the person who works at the shoe store will say, let's look at your foot shape. Let's look at how you're walking. Let's look at you going over a force plate and then they'll say, um, congratulations, you're a neutral foot, you're a supinator, you're a pronator. Um, this is what we found. These are the types of shoes that you'll thrive in because you are that, 
that foot shape. And to murky the waters once again, we know that there's no correlation. There's no link between your foot shape and what type of shoe you need to, um, when it comes to reducing your risk of injury, when it comes to increasing performance. Um, there's just zero correlation there. What we do recommend um, is well, you need to try a whole bunch of different shoes and you need to find what is the most comfortable for you. And there is, I just released another, um, another review of a paper, which um, Ben O'Nig is like a, um, he's a researcher around shoes, feet, um, orthotics. And he has this like kind of theory called the preferred movement path and everyone's anatomy depending on where their flexibility is, depending on whether what their um, joints and muscles do, they have a preferred way of moving. And if you can find a shoe that has their preferred way of moving, um, then they're most likely going to thrive. And I think there are some studies that might reduce their risk of injury, but that's not increasing. That's not if they have a flat foot that they need support. They actually might need to move into pronation because that's their preferred movement path. And if you do try a whole bunch of different shoes, and you find one that's more comfortable, potentially that shoe is actually helping you move through that preferred movement path. And so I recommend to a lot of runners to try a whole bunch of different shoes and see what they find most comfortable. Um, and you kind of mentioned that side-on view because um, sometimes a runner can do what we call overstriding. They can uh, heel strike really far in front of their body when they first make that initial contact onto the ground. Um, we know that that's not helpful for a runner. We know that's not helpful for efficiency. When you do the further in front of your body that you reach um, does generate some breaking force through your body. And sometimes if someone has a really soft heel or a big heel drop with a lot of foam underneath that heel, they can almost get away with contacting the ground really far in front of their body and get away with that breaking force and might not feel as uncomfortable as if they were running barefoot. But we do know that that is unhelpful. We do know that sometimes changing the, the shoes or just increasing the cadence or just um, cueing and having a runner have more awareness just to contact closer to their center of gravity um, does have tremendous benefits with um, improving efficiency and just improving your running technique. Um, however, I do see a lot of runners that don't have that overreaching pattern they probably don't need to change their shoes if they're enjoying or they find their shoe that they're running in most comfortable. Um, and so if I was working at a shoe store and I would ask a runner, okay, what's your previous history of running injuries? If they don't have a lot of running injuries, I'd say, what do you find most comfortable? Um, and then I'd ask, do they want to increase their running performance? If I want, if they want really want to increase their running performance, I'd see potentially a lighter shoe. We know that lighter shoes um, by hundred grams to increase running efficiency. Um, but if they didn't want to increase their performance, if they didn't want, if they didn't have a long history of running injuries, I'd just find one that they're um, comfortable in. I'd find a shoe that they find most comfortable. If I looked them on treadmill and they're not overreaching, don't have that breaking force. I just give them that shoe that they're thriving in already. And they've already adapted to that shoe. And so that's what I'd do if I was working at shoe stores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I think uh, I, I see a lot of specialty shops do this really well now as they kind of getting caught up with the current research and some of this stuff where like what I like to tell people to sum it up is like, 
if you go into a specialty shop, what you should be looking for is someone who's an expert at taking a hundred, if not a thousand different models by different brands and narrowing that down to maybe three to four choices that you can kind of put on and then tell them which one feels best to you. Cause ultimately, like you said, you want to have that user-based feedback where this shoe's the most comfortable for my gate, my mechanics, and is, uh, you know, not going to create any type of like awkward positioning that is going to you know, potentially create an overuse injury for me if I try to run in this product. So I, I understand like it can be overwhelming for folks when they think like, well, like where do I start in identifying my comfort when there's hundreds of potential options, but that that's where I think leaning on the specialty stores are, are important because they can maybe you can go in there and give them some feedback as what's worked for you, what's felt comfortable in the past. And then they have that, that large knowledge base of the different models that do X that, or do specific things by, you know, certain brands. And then, you know, they can help you kind of whittle that down to a manageable number of ones to try out and, and find out for yourself. Yeah. And then it gets into the topic of like, let's say they have had a long history of injuries. Maybe it's around the knee or maybe it's around the hip and it's trying to suggest type of shoes for those particular histories, um, which we do know if you give someone a certain type of shoe, it will change the demands around different types, uh, different areas of the body. Um, so having that level of expertise is also really crucial for um, when prescribing shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, this is awesome stuff, uh, Brody. I think uh, um, we've done a pretty good dive into some of the the mechanics and the footwear side of things. Uh, uh, I would like to maybe shift gears. We can go back to this or we can continue with this if you got more you want to add, but I want to take a peek at strength training and uh, look at just like kind of where the role of the gym or the strength and that type of movement is with someone who maybe would at first glance say, hey, that's not really my jam. I'd rather just be out there running more. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we're talking about this. this is one of my favorite topics. Uh, and it's very hard to convince a runner to start strength training. There's a certain type of runner that just wants to run and that's it. And it's a very hard barrier to convince them to start strength training. Um, and we talked about resiliency before we talked about trying to throw variation at your body and, um, making sure that you're adapting to a whole bunch of different things and strength training is just one of them. And there are a ton of evidence, mountains and mountains of evidence to show the benefits of strength training for running performance for endurance performance. So doing some strength training will help your marathon time. It will help your ultra time. It's those, um, it sounds counterintuitive if you want to do an endurance-based sport that you should train your body for as much endurance as possible um, and just train the muscles for muscular endurance. It just makes sense. But we have certain um, buckets within the body. We have this endurance bucket, we have this strength bucket, and we have this power plyometric sort of bucket that we want to fill and we want to be like, we, we kind of want to have our energy and time spent in some of those buckets. If you're an endurance athlete and you're running four, five, six times a week, your endurance bucket is up to the brim. It's, it's full. Your strength might not be full, but when people eventually go to the gym, what do they do? They do body weight exercises because that's what they're very good at. And it's what they thrive at. So they do their body weight, calf raises, push ups, squats, lunges, and, what they're trying to do is oh, let's just say they're following like a high rep. Let's say they can do three sets of 20. Let's say they can do three sets of 25, but that's just what they thrive in. 
you're just trying to fill up that endurance bucket that's already full to the brim through your days and days of cardio throughout the week. Spend some time doing some strength work because there is, uh, um, like I said, a ton of evidence anywhere from the 5Ks upwards shows that strength training will help improve that, that distance. And you want to start, if you haven't had any particular gym um, experience, if you haven't had much um, history with lifting weights, then you very you start gradual. You might need to start with body weight because we don't want an abrupt change in your body. We want to slowly adapt as we've discussed, but we need to have the goal in mind to slowly increase those weights. We need to slowly build up so that you're doing three sets of 10. It's quite tough to do like that 10th rep. And then we want to increase the weight once you've adapted, once your technique is fine, once you're safe in the gym to even go heavier and do say like a, a six rep max or an eight rep max so that you're doing a squat where you can um, during the sixth rep, it's really tough to do. And seventh is so tough. And you can just push out an eighth rep and you couldn't possibly do a ninth rep. And then you load the weights and then that's, and you do say four sets of those. It's that level of heaviness that you need to, try and achieve to get to it could take months could take six to 12 months to get to that stage but should be a goal in mind because there are studies where you get um, three different groups of people you put they all do their same level of running they all have baseline characteristics you get them you get one group to do a whole bunch of endurance based strength work you get a whole bunch to do um, like heavy strength work and you get the others to do heavy and also plyometric strength work and then have a look at their marathon times and you can see that the ones that do the strength work, the heavy strength work, and that third group that do strength plus plyometrics, they get better. Whereas the ones who just do the bodyweight stuff, they don't improve to the same degree. And so there's some really well-designed studies there to, to prove it. And sometimes that's enough evidence to convince someone, okay, maybe I should start doing my strength training, which is very good. But you also become more resilient. You also um, tolerate a different level of load through your knees and through your feet and through your hips. And um, it just overall contributes to better, um, more resilient body. There isn't, there isn't really evidence yet available to show that um, strength training reduces risk of injury. Once you are injured, strength training needs to be within your rehab. It hundred percent needs to be a ton of evidence for that. But because injuries are so multifactorial, we haven't had a well enough design study to show that strength training will reduce your risk of injury. However, if the evidence does highlight in the future, that is, that's just icing on the cake, but it will improve your running performance and you will become more resilient as a result of it. That's interesting. I've got a couple questions around that stuff. First is like with the injury prevention or the lack of the evidence there, is there a, is there an angle at which that's being explored in from an imbalance standpoint? Cause I think of just like from, from like you get a runner, especially I think like you get the road runners that are, they're kind of always training for say a marathon. It's always flat. It's always hard surface. It's always very, very linear. And they may develop a situation where like, say their posterior chain is weaker and they have an imbalance. Is there any argument to be made that some strength work that maybe targets the posterior chain would be a potential alleviation of future injuries because now you're more, you're more balanced than you would have been in the past? I follow, I follow a ton of experts that are really like the best in the world at following this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And 
it may like in all of their minds, it makes so much sense. The strength training reduces your risk of injury that if you did have some imbalance getting into the gym and strengthening up your weak links will reduce the risk of that particular injury. But we need to consider how tough it is to design a study Mm -hmm. that we have the confidence of knowing that strength reduces the risk of injury Um, because we could, let's just say if someone has a weak um, posterior chain um, and then we take a whole, we have to take like say 50 people that have a weak posterior chain, train someone, train half of them to do that, to strengthen up their calves, hamstrings, glutes, and the other to stay completely consistent and then track their injuries the ones that are training the the posterior chain, they might have some sort of training errors along the way and get injured. The others might be conservative and not get injured. It's really hard to have the level of confidence to know um, or just design a study to show or have confidence to know that it does reduce the risk of injury. So it's more of the study design standpoint, but what we know from the physiological effects of strength training and the physiological reasons of why we get injured. It just makes a ton of sense. If you have a weak chain, if you have, if your knee is one of your weak links and then you start doing squats, lunges, single leg squats, um, plyo lunges, and just build your knee, it's not going to break down to the same degree that it once did. It's going to have a more resilient, a higher um, adaptation zone, a higher threshold you'll have to push more at it before it breaks down. It just makes a ton of sense. But the way studies need to be designed is so it's, it's very, very tricky to, to come up with that level of evidence, which is why it just hasn't shown that there isn't lack of evidence. There's just no evidence because it's very hard to build mm-hmm. and design. Yeah. And quite expensive once you get around to probably trying to put it together. <laughs> yeah. And some people have like studies where they, they get like 10 people and they show the benefits, but then the sample size is too small. And it's like, well, we can't find anyone else to fit the same characteristics to, to implement the study. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's more from the design standpoint. Sure. So let's, let's change gears a little bit with the performance side of strength work. Then if we use that same example, is there, is the evidence towards strength for performance? Is there any indication that say that you have that person with the, the, weak posterior chain and since it's weaker in the later stages of an endurance event when things are just starting to break down you're getting to that limit of what you're capable of is there is the evidence for improvements with strength work more efficiency based then because if i think of someone with a weak posterior chain out there running at the very end of the race they may have some imbalances in the sense that they're no longer running in the most efficient mechanic that they had in the beginning when things hadn't broken down is that where we're seeing some of these benefits from strength or is it something different altogether we're seeing most of the benefits around um like you said, being more efficient when you're in steady state, like when you're not pushed to exhaustion, um, you are utilizing oxygen a lot better. You, you're utilizing your muscles a bit differently. Like you've already tipped off your endurance um, with your running and with all the cardio that you're doing, tapping into that strength work just seems to make the muscles more efficient. Um, the whole way you utilize, um, redirect the blood, redirect like the concentrations of oxygen to the level of the muscles and you just achieve a steady state or your, um, you become more efficient at utilizing oxygen when you tap into these certain levels of strength. 
if someone is breaking down, if they're at the end of like they're pushing themselves to the limit and at the end of an endurance event, they're, they're starting to drop form and, um, yeah, let's just say lose technique or become less efficient as a runner, um, that's, I guess, in my mind, that's similar to they probably just haven't built up enough endurance for that event. Like if you start training your endurance at those stages, um, it's hard to say that strength will help them run better technique further into an endurance event. They're probably needing to adapt to more of that longer endurance event, like maybe train um, closer to that distance. And so that they're working on their endurance, um, their training with more within that endurance. But yeah, the strength, the benefits when it comes to strength training is this um, utilizing your oxygen more efficiently and reducing or improving that oxygen consumption. And you, you're just achieving a steady state um, at a faster distance, if that makes sense. Um, so you could either be running at the same speed as someone next to you who hasn't strength trained and you're not feeling as tired, or you can push yourself to the same intensity as that person, um, the same perceived level of um, exhaustion, but you're traveling faster than they are. And so it's just all about that oxygen efficiency and um, utilizing like a, a better steady state. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So we know that strength training is going to be uh, effective. And we talked a little bit about just maybe some of the procedures as to like what to do with like the heavier weights, which, you know, sometimes I think endurance athletes in general are starting to get that message. I don't see as many people heading over to like, you know, the, the mats and just doing 200 sit-ups and a bunch of push-ups as much as I maybe used to, which I think is good. Uh, but what are some go-to strength movements that you like to kind of get people started with as like kind of foundational movements that are going to be good kind of things to implement into your program? Yeah. Um, it can be simple. It can be, um, squats, lunges, calf raises, um, deadlifts, like just those sort of four movements can, that's all you need to do. If you want to keep it simplistic, I do say strength training can be a science. It can also be an art. You have a lot of personal trainers or health professionals that can, that do like getting quite fancy. Um, and sometimes a runner does like variety. They do get bored of a particular exercise and need to change it up. Um, but if we're talking about the research and we're talking about what, uh, what type of exercises uh, does improve a runner, we're talking about squats. We're talking about lunges. We're talking, we're definitely doing some level of calf work trying to do calf work with a straight leg and also with a bent leg. Um, as soon as you bend that knee and do some calf raises, you're tapping into more of your soleus muscle. And when you contact the ground as a runner and when you push off as a runner, your leg isn't completely straight. It's slightly bent, which means that you're working different calf muscles than if you were to do straight leg calf raises. So you do want to do calf raises with straight legs, but you also want to do um, it with bent knees. So that either be, if you're at the gym and have a seated calf raise machine, um, you can do that. Or if you don't have a seated calf raise machine, you can do some calf raises, but keep the knee bent at about 15 degrees. So it's only just a slight bend, just unlocking, but staying at that same angle the entire time throughout the duration of your calf raise um, that can work the soleus muscle. Um, rather than your gastrocnemius. And yeah, that that's a little tip that I'd um, definitely implement if you wanted to improve your running. 
Um, split squats, like Bulgarian split squats, uh, like I said, lunges, deadlifts, and any variation of those foundation movements um, that keeps enough variety that you adhere to the strength training and that you still do it twice a week because um, that's the kind of frequency that we're aiming for. Um, yeah, definitely do that. I do have in my podcast a whole season dedicated to strength training and covering all these myths because people will say straight away, I don't want to become a big bulky gym goer because if I put on a lot of muscle mass, then I'm going to be too bulky to be a runner. They also say that I just need to train my muscles for endurance. Um, and they do say that if I strength train, that I'll be too sore throughout my running week and it's going to inhibit my um, or impact my running once I start getting out there. And the season in that in my podcast is busts a whole bunch of those myths and just make sure that your training intensity and your training frequency is at a good amount. Um, I don't know if you want me to elaborate on a couple of those myths, but it's there if you want to check it out. Um, but just know that it's you're not going to put on a whole bunch of muscle mass. You're not going to be as sore as you think. And um, yeah, we do need to work strength rather than endurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think this is this is great information. And one thing I usually recommend, and I'd love to hear your feedback on this, is when you are putting in some of that lower body strength work into your training plan. I think for the lot of folks, it makes sense assuming you can do it with your schedule and just your energy levels is place those on the same days as you're doing something a little more intense from the running side of things, because then you're keeping those type of like more power based, faster running type things all in one category. And then that next day, assuming you're following a hard, easy, hard kind of rhythm with your training program, you're, you're keeping your harder days hard and your easy days easy. So you don't have a scenario where like maybe you go to the track one day and do 400 meter intervals, which is going to be much more explosive than say your long run. And then the next day when you should be recovering from that more explosive work, go to the gym and start banging out squats and deadlifts where you're kind of yeah. hitting that you're tapping that same thing a little too directly. Uh, and you're, you're, I guess you're getting into almost like a block style of workout at that point. So maybe there is some impl- or some, some efficacy there if that's what you're trying to target. There's a couple of ways you can approach it. And that's probably one of my favorites. If you don't, if let's just say if you're running five times a week and you want to dedicate two of those days to complete recovery, um, then you can do some strength work on your running days. If it's a hard session, I def- definitely recommend doing the running first and then doing a strength training rather than the other way around. If you do have the luxury of time, studies will show that if you keep the running session and the strength session eight hours apart, then um, your body will adapt to both rather than if you do it too closely, the body is sort of thinking to themselves, what do you want me to adapt to? Do you want me to be a runner? Do you want me to be a gym goer? What do you want me to strengthen up? What do you want me to adapt to? Um, if those sessions are a bit too close together. However, you're still going to receive, if you don't have the luxury of time to split them up into morning and night and you do them in the same session within a couple of hours, you will still receive the benefits. It's still worth doing. It's just not um, your adaptation process won't be as efficient as if you were to break them up. But yeah, it can just be as simple as breaking it up into three different movements. Do those three movements. It'll probably take you half an hour to do um, your full sets of those movements. And yeah, you can definitely do a hard session and your strength-based sessions on one day and then leave your next day for recovery and just a really light run or even just a, a rest. 
But um, if someone's constantly breaking down with different types of injuries or they're constantly getting injured and they're running six times a week and they need to do strength training, it's probably worth taking out that sixth running session of the week and replacing it with a strength training session because you're, you're constantly getting overuse injuries. Maybe you're doing too much running. Maybe we just need to replace your running with another form of cross training. Could be swimming, could be cycling, could be, um, could be strength training and just allowing your body just to shift gears and do something different where you're still staying fit, but you're just not doing that repetitive running motion over again. So if someone is one, if they're training more than five times a week and two, if they are constantly getting injured, then maybe it's something we need to consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Cause I mean, there's always going to be kind of the standard recommendation that is essentially attempting to kind of catch the average person or the person who's uh, that they were expecting doing things a certain way. But then when you get, when you finally get down to it, it is an individual thing where you want to look at what is your scenario versus the, what they're expecting that you're doing. <laughs> yeah. What's their history? What are they like as a, as a human? It's um, definitely worth factoring in and same with like the shoe, the shoe issue, we want to base it on the individual. We want to base on how they like to run, what their history of injuries is like and what they thrive in. It's it's a very similar concept. We just really want to tailor as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's work is kind of fun and exciting when you got the individual and you have to break down where their needs and things are and kind of planning from there. Yeah, agreed. Awesome. Yeah, I think, well, this has been a lot of fun. I have a one kind of more question around the weight training stuff or the strength work is you mentioned that two sessions per week is, is optimal. Um, in most cases, is that two sessions per week focused on like specific areas? So like two lower leg sessions, two upper sessions, and then like maybe two core sessions and how you kind of like either combine those or break them up is more individualized. Yeah. Good question. Um, it depends on what you want to cover. I do think you should be well-rounded and do some upper body, some trunk, some lower legs within your gym session. Um, what I'm saying, if you want to become a better runner, then you need two strength sessions a week um, of your legs. So you need to do two leg sessions per week and say on the, the first session of the week, it might be squats, lunges, calf raises, And then the second session might be squats again. It might be deadlifts. It might be split squats or something along those lines. Um, If you are just starting out and depending how you want to do upper body, you're not going to become a better runner um, if you like really work your upper body, but variety is very good as well. So if you want to do mix up some sort of core and some sort of upper body throughout the week, then um, it just, just makes sense. Just You just become... Or an all-rounder but when it comes to frequency if you are just starting out and you want to adapt if you're just doing body weight exercises because you haven't done any strength training before um, three times a week you'll adapt faster than if you were to do it twice a week however one so you want to do like a little and often if you wish once you start getting heavier and you start getting um, say just like a generic delayed onset muscle soreness doms the next day um and you start lifting heavier, you want to back that off from three times a week to two times a week and plan it strategically within your weekly run 
so that you're not too disrupted with your hard sessions or your easy sessions. You want to make sure that's optimal. Um, so two sessions a week with heavy strength work will increase your level of strength. It will build you up. If at a point in time you have to back that off to once a week, you're no longer building up strength. You're maintaining the strength that you have gained. So if you, um, less to say you're training for a marathon, in the early days, you do three times a week because you're only just doing bodyweight exercises. Then you get, say, four, five, six weeks in where you start going heavy, you back off to two sessions a week, and you build up strength along the way throughout your marathon training. If it gets to, say, six weeks out or, um, yeah, six to eight weeks out of your marathon and you want to prioritize more of the running, you want to tailor to specificity, you want to start doing more um, tailoring to the time of day, the endurance, the distance that you need to cover, the types of foods that you need to eat during that, that race. You want to try and really get specific. Then we can take out one training, uh, one strength training session a week and just do once a week because that way we're maintaining the strength that we've gained and you adapt and become more specific in your training to that marathon event. Um, so that's a way that you can structure it. And, and that goes to say how we can utilize the frequency of your strength sessions throughout the week to get the best outcome, the best performance. Awesome. No, that's, that's great. Um, this has been just a ton of information. I think it's gonna be really valuable folks, especially if they are exploring strength work to get into it or have deal, dealt with injuries or just trying to avoid it in general. Um, couple more questions. I lied actually about the strength training stuff. I got a few more. <laughs> oh. <laughs> a, what do you think about like, so, well, actually two questions here. So with the core and the upper body stuff, does that follow the same recommendation of focusing more on low repetition, high weight, or is that a little more flexible in terms of just like the rep freak or the, the, the rep count, I guess, and the load, the weight load, uh, with, with, on the strength side? Um, to be honest, I don't know, to be honest, I, like if it comes to benefiting a runner, mm-hmm. I haven't seen any evidence. I don't think there will be any evidence, but if you want to do some upper body stuff, if you, I will say this, if you don't want big arms, if you don't want like a big chest or a bulky shoulders, arms, if you want to stay lean, you won't put on muscle mass if you are doing cardio throughout your week. So you can st- you can lift quite heavy. You can do like your bicep curls, shoulder press, pecs, lats. You can do all that quite heavy. Um, and if you're still doing running several times a week, you're not going to put on weight and you're not going to get bulky. You might get more defined. You might put on a little bit of muscle mass, but the ones who are big, big gym goers, that or bodybuilders, they're one, they're eating like so much throughout the day and they're working out differently. They're working out four to five times a week um, in their strength sessions to try and put on as much muscle mass as they can. Don't think that if you, well, and also there's what we call the interference effect. If you are doing two strength sessions a week, but you're also running four to five times a week, your body is going to prioritize adapting to endurance over anything else. So you will still keep that lean running uh, elite uh, endurance body. So keep that in mind. And you're not eating to the same amount of those as those bodybuilders. You're not having the same amount of protein or just eating mountains of food. Force feeding yourself. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. It's such a different process to try and put on muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's almost like bodybuilders, 
put in so much time and so much effort to put on any sort of muscle mass, they kind of laugh at a runner that says, oh, I, I don't want to be a gym goer because I just don't want to put on too much muscle. They laugh because they're like, you're never going to put on muscle. We work yeah. so hard to do it. You can't just stumble into a gym and put on muscle. It's just not going to happen. Um, so you will become more defined, but you, I will say you can lift heavier weights with your upper body and with your core and you won't become this big bulky gym goer. Um, it just won't happen. Yeah. If you wander into like a bodybuilder forum and, and, and share that you're worried about adding a couple extra pounds of muscle from a few weight room trips, they're going to laugh at you. Cause they'll be like, well, it took me a year to get those last couple of pounds yeah. of muscle. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if, a, a, imagine if a gym goer said, Oh, you know, I might want to start investing in running, but I just don't want to be a sub three hour marathoner. You just laugh at them. You'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? And that's the same thing when people talk about putting on muscle mass in the gym. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting when you start looking through it, looking at it through the, through the lens of the person who's actually trying to do that. So um, one other thing with that is uh, how do you feel about like kettlebell swings? Is that because sometimes when I think of kettlebell swings, um, we're starting to get into like a little more of a higher repetition in a lot of cases. I know you can do heavier kettlebell swings, but a lot of times the, it's just got a little bit more of a barrier to entry if you're going to be like doing a low repetition, high weight kettlebell swing. Yeah. So that's when we're delving into, so I talked about those three buckets. We talked about endurance. We talked about like absolute strength and we talked about speed and plyometrics and power, that sort of thing. So kettlebell swings can kind of start merging in with the power, speed, um, plyometric type of exercises that we do want to tap into. Um, I like it as long as when we always talk about plyometrics and we talk about speed and power, we want to make sure that you have a good baseline to start with. We want to make sure that you have um, a strength foundation first. We want to make sure that your technique is fine and that you're able to tolerate high loads before starting to introduce speed. But yeah, that's just tapping into um, something that a runner needs. A runner needs speed. It needs this like quick firing muscle sort of um, time. And running is a plyometric exercise that requires a rapid contact the ground, absorb that load, and then propel off it's like a very quick time and if you're doing say a cadence of 180 three steps per second it is quite fast to try and produce that amount of force and while kettlebell swings aren't really specific or really um tapping into the same muscle pattern as um producing or propelling off um, when you're running it still is getting the muscles used to like say your glutes your quads your proximal hamstring tendons they they want to absorb that load and quickly release it and um, tap into that level of um, that energy storage sort of release. So yeah, it's, I'm more than happy for people to do kettlebell swings. I do kettlebell swings. It's one of my favorite ones to do. Um, so yeah, mix it up. If you want to do some say box jumps, if you want to do some like propulsion where you're um, you're dropping down from a box and then you landing and quickly spring yourself back up onto another box those sort of plyometric exercises if you're doing skipping or single leg skipping all that sort of stuff introduces speed introduces um, plyometrics it's very beneficial for a runner excellent i think this has been a content heavy episode and one that hopefully will uh, share a lot of information with folks who are looking to kind of get into running or continue their running 
and uh, do it in a sustainable way. So uh, Brody Sharp, thank you so much for taking some time and joining me today. Zach, I had a lot of pleasure. And like you said, it's, um, it's a passion of mine and you can tell I get amped up about some of these topics. So thanks for creating an outlet for me to, um, for today to just dispel a lot of these myths and try and provide a lot of clarity for runners. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll have to have you back on down the road as we get more questions and kind of interest around this particular topic. But before we do go, I want to give you a chance to kind of share where folks can find you, whether it's social media websites. I know you mentioned you have a podcast has a lot of great, uh, probably deeper dives into what we talked about today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I do, if someone is interested, the podcast is called the Run Smarter Podcast. Um, I do recommend because there's like maybe 112 episodes at the moment. There's go back to the first 10, listen to the first 10, which are universal principles to overcome and prevent injury um, before scrolling through all the other ones and finding topics it's relevant in. But it's all designed to help educate the runner in simple concepts. I know it can murky the waters with some of the topics we talked about today, but there's an overall message that is quite clear and quite, um, it provides a lot of clarity. Um, so the Run Smarter podcast, search it wherever you're listening to this now. Um, I do have, I am quite active on Instagram. Um, it's the at Run Smarter series is my handle. And um, you can, I do release some blogs and review some research articles on that as well. Um, and the website, if you want to Im- improve your running knowledge, it's runsmarter.online is a website. Awesome. That's very cool stuff, Brody. Uh, I'll be sure to link that stuff in the show notes too. So listeners who are interested can easily click over and, and find out, find out what you're up to and check out some of that, some of those podcast episodes. So thanks again for coming on HBO. Thanks Zach. Take care. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcasts is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at zachbitter on Instagram, at zbitter on Twitter, and at zach.bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.